It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest than I go to than I have ever known. I just want to say that is the greatest last line of any book I've ever read. I think it's just, it's so fitting. I love it. Beautiful. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Zach and Kevin about the conclusion of Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Today's quote of the day comes from Thomas Jefferson. We've spent a lot of time talking about the French Revolution, and a little bit of time in class talking about the American Revolution and the differences. I wanted to bring in Jefferson's voice into this conversation to just briefly highlight some of the ways in which this country was facing very similar problems and having to make very similar decisions. Here is something that Jefferson says in 1813 in a letter to John Adams. But even in Europe, a change has sensibly taken place in the mind of man. Science has liberated the ideas of those who read and reflect, and the American example has kindled feelings of right in the people. An insurrection has consequently begun of science, talents, and courage against rank and birth, which have fallen into contempt. It has failed in its first effort because the mobs of the cities, the instrument used for its accomplishment, debased by ignorance, poverty, and vice, could not be restrained to rational action. But the world will recover from the panic of this first catastrophe. Science is progressive, and talents and enterprise on the alert. Resort may be had to the people of the country, a more governable power from their principles and subordination, and rank and birth and tinsel aristocracy will finally shrink into insignificance even there. This, however, we have no right to meddle with. It suffices for us if the moral and physical condition of our own citizens qualifies them to select the able and good for the direction of their government with a recurrence of elections at such short periods as will enable them to displace an unfaithful servant before the mischief he mediates may be irremediable. This is Jefferson reflecting on the events of the French Revolution from a distance, a distance of both time and space, and contemplating what lies ahead for his own government and his own country. For more about the madness of the Reign of Terror and for the excellent and wonderful and beautiful conclusion of Dickens' novel, let's go into that chat with me and Kevin and Zach. Hi, Zach. Hi. How are you? Good. And here's Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How's it going? Good. I'm a little bit worried because um, I think we have to start by doing a little bit of plot summary. And I hope that this little bit doesn't become a lot. And I hope it also doesn't involve me doing most of the talking. I'll, I'll start and then I'll maybe invite you guys to jump in and help fill in some plot patches. And then I want to obviously spend the majority of the conversation talking about more meaningful questions. But just to help people catch up, Charles Darnay gets this letter from an old acquaintance of his, a servant of the family, who is asking for help. And that servant says, please come help me. I need you, you know, Obi-Wan, you're my only help kind of thing. And Charles Darnay, because he's such a good person, goes goes back into France, even though it's going back into the lion's den, as it were. It's very dangerous for him to do so. We could maybe, if you want to, talk about why France at this time, or the revolutionaries, are so down on emigrants, people who leave France. 
he knows that if he goes back, he risks being uh, captured and imprisoned, um, he, which is exactly what happens to him. He's imprisoned. Uh, Lucy and Dr. Manette come to Paris to look for him. He's put on trial. Long story short, uh, Dr. Manette testifies at this trial. Charles Darnay is released, goes home. We think, oh, this is a happy ending. It's somewhat like King Lear in the sense that we give, we're, we're given this fake ending. Knock on the door. It's the police again, re-arresting Charles Darnay. He's put on trial again. And at this trial, this letter is read. Does one of you bravely want to take a stab at, in 30 seconds, summarizing the contents of this letter? It's a letter that explains the reason why Dr. Manette was put into prison to begin with. I say bravely because it the details of the story are quite complex. We can reduce them if you'd like to reduce them. And I'm, I mean, I'm happy to do it too. Again, I don't want you to feel quizzed. I just, you know, always am hesitant to do too much of the talking here. So what exactly does this letter say that is read in the trial? So Dr. Renee, he was um, he was asked by these two aristocrats. Basically, yeah, this is to, this is many years ago. Yeah, yeah, long, long time ago. And yeah. he was asked to come help. They needed like, hey, you're a pretty well known professional in in your field of medicine. So come take a look at these people. So he comes and he finds a woman with like brain fever of some kind. And then he also finds a young man who's been stabbed. And it's clear to him that even if he had been there, like right after it happened, this guy was going to die. And so the guy explains to him basically that he was protecting his family's honor because these aristocrats had come in and taken his sister and done unspeakable things to her. And so he was basically came in and defended his honor and ended up getting killed and so he is devastated and he basically brings condemnation upon the people that did this to him and his family they tell dr Manet, he's like you're you're not going to tell anybody about this right and he's like well you know like as a doctor i'm you know i'm supposed to keep things pretty confidential I wasn't quite clear if he ended up telling somebody or he wrote a letter or something like that. Explaining. Well, they offer him a bribe to keep that's, quiet and, that's he right. refu- yeah. and he refuses the bribe. So he doesn't actually tell anyone yet, but they, they get the clear impression that mm. he won't be as cooperative in keeping the silence as they think. Yeah. So they end up basically because they're worried about him telling people about this, they get him thrown into the Bastille. In his letter, he basically says, I condemn these men and their lineage for all of time and just completely denounce them, which is kind of a bit of a pickle because that is Charles's uncle and he's part of that lineage. And so they use that letter to condemn Charles again. Excellent. Zach, you did a great job. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I could not have done it as succinctly and clearly as you. Charles Darnay is of this lineage. He is their nephew. So the French revolutionaries condemn him of being an aristocrat, a committer of violence against the populace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and not to mention an emigrant, which they also hate. Uh, irony of ironies, the, 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 the smoking gun, the, the final nail in the coffin is provided by his own father-in-law, this horrible twist of fate. So Dr. Manette is shattered. He can't do anything. And he falls back into this kind of obsessive, traumatic uh, shoemaking. Sidney Carton comes to Paris and starts to help. And there's some weird scenes in which he goes in some of a disguise to the, the wine shop and stuff and tries to find out about the Bastille prison and where Charles Darnay is being kept. Okay, let's open to page 349. Sidney Carton is becoming quite a, 
what would you say, proactive, courageous person. He's making all these arrangements. Dr. Manette is kind of collapsed. Lucy is distressed, doesn't quite know what to do. Laurie, Jarvis Laurie has his hands full. Sidney Carton steps up to the plate and really takes a lot of responsibility. He's telling people, you do this, you do that. Don't worry, I have a plan. Go to page 349. I love this moment. Well, bottom of 347, let's start there. When they arrived at the gateway where he had paused in the dark not many hours before to picture to himself on which of the rough stones of the street her feet had trodden, he lifted her again and carried her up the staircase to their rooms. There he laid her down on a couch while her child, Lucy's child, and Miss Pross wept over her. Don't recall her to yourself, he said softly to the latter. She is better so. Don't revive her to consciousness while she only faints. Oh, Carton, Carton, dear Carton, cried little Lucy, springing up and throwing her arms passionately around him in a burst of grief. Now that you have come, I think you will do something to help Mama, something to save Papa. Oh, look at her, dear dear Carton. Can you, of all the people who love her, bear to see her so? He bent over the child and laid her blooming cheek against his face. He put her gently from him and looked at her unconscious mother. Before I go, he said and paused, may I kiss her? And then the narrator says this. It was remembered afterwards that when he bent down and touched her face with his lips, he murmured some words. The child who was nearest to him told them afterwards and told her grandchildren when she was a handsome old lady that she heard him say, a life you love. And in the margin next to this moment, I have drawn one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stars. I want you both to tell me what you make of this. He doesn't know if he'll ever see them again. So he's, I take this to mean that he's distilled a parting message into this phrase, a life you love. What does this mean to you, this phrase? Yeah, it's very simple. It's a few words. So it's really up to interpretation, but it just kind of is the definition of all this almost uh, of the whole book, at least in my opinion, a lot of what happens after this with Sydney, you know, sacrificing himself and the rationale behind that. A lot of it was to love, like it was to, he, he felt like his whole life he hadn't really loved anyone or he had loved somebody, but he hadn't been able to actually share love with others or, or be loved mm-hmm. and experience that and the growth that comes with that. But yeah, I think a lot of it just surrounds love. Excellent. Zach, what would you add? So I was curious when I, I was thinking about this, whether I have a different version, I have an ebook version of it, which I kind of like, cause I can actually just search a life you love. Um, yeah, yeah. I wanted to see if it appeared anywhere else in the text. And it appeared way back in, I want to say, chapter 13 of book two. At the very end, he's talking to Miss Manette. And he basically says in this last sentence, he says, Oh, Miss Manette, when the little picture of a happy father's face looks up in yours, when you see your own bright beauty springing up anew at your feet, think now and then that there's a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you. So I think for me, it's like a callback to this, this moment when he's basically saying, I'll do, you know, whatever it takes, because I love you, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make you happy, you know, living a life that you love, even if it's, you know, not with him, it's with somebody else. And so he's, it's a fulfillment of, of this prophecy. And we see him go on to fulfill that in greater detail. At the Excellent. End of the That's so, so great. I, I'm so happy that you you've, you're reading the text so carefully. And Kevin, yeah, it's a new it's a, it's a new experience for him. He he fell in love with Lucy early on, but I think maybe one thing. I mean, I think this phrase is so great because, as you say, Kevin, it is so suggestive and it creates all of these possible interpretations. One of which, as Zach has pointed out, is that he one life that Sidney Carton loves is Lucy's, and he's willing to do anything to make that life better for her. 
even if it means sacrificing his own happiness or eventually his own life. I think another thing that it means is make sure that the life you're living is a life that you could love. Make sure that your mm-hmm. own life is admirable in some way. He was telling this little girl, like, what? how should we live? Live a life that you love. Live a life that you can be proud of and respect and look back on with pride, you know, healthy pride. This is a lesson that Sidney Carton maybe is learning late, but he's learning and he's learning to a profound degree. A life you love. Well, yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. And it's, and then him, you know, defining a life that he loves for himself uh, to sacrifice himself for Lucy and, and all of them. It's just interesting that he only gets to enjoy, I don't know, the peace and happiness that comes from that decision he makes to sacrifice himself, like leading up to the event. Because after that, he's dead, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. What if a life you love involves laying it down? That's not easy. How would I know? I've never, I've never been called (laughs) upon to do such a thing. So I wouldn't know, but I imagine it's not easy, but you can imagine your last moments being full of at at least the consolation of knowing that the people who will remember you, I I love, I love what this paragraph does. It zooms out to her grandchildren. When she was a fine, old, handsome lady, she would tell this story. And what he said was a life you love. So in the generations to come, Sidney Carton is a person who is held in reverence and who is spoken about with love. He's not forgotten. So even though his life is over because of this decision, in a way it's not. In a way he gains a kind of immortality. He's held in this kind of immortal reverence. Yeah. For, for for the sacrifice that he made. So yes, the, you know, what Christ says back into the New Testament. What does he say? Whosoever will lose his life shall find it or something like this. You know what I'm referring to, yeah? What, what does Sidney Carton, how would you describe his transformation? How does he become the person that he becomes? We've talked about how he began the novel as this kind of drunken wastrel who is full of envy and hatred. He even says, I hate the fellow. How does he go from that to a person who gives his life for Charles Darnay? That's actually one of my favorite parts of the book, a part where he's talking with Mr. Laurie and Mr. Laurie's feeling sad about Charles going to to prison, being sent to Bastille. But during that conversation, you hear uh, Sidney's intentions, you know, his rationale behind the sacrifice. But he basically says where Cardin says, yours is a long life to look back upon, sir. And he said, said Carton wistfully, I'm in my 78th year. And he says, I'm a solitary old bachelor. No one would weep for me. And then Sydney's like, how could you say that? Wouldn't she weep for you and her child? And he's like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. And then Sydney says, if you could say with truth to your own solitary heart tonight, I have secured to myself the love and attachment, the gratitude or respect of no human creature. I have won myself a tender place in no regard. I have done nothing good for or serviceable to be remembered by. Your 78 years would be 78 heavy curses, would they not? Laurie says, yes, they would be. But it just kind of shows that he somehow, previous to this, gained a desire to be loved or to have made a difference. Maybe just through witnessing all this, the injustices, I don't know what. Love the scene. I love that scene, too. I'm so glad you brought it up. It, the only, the best response to your wonderful comment, Kevin, is simply to say, one reason Sidney Carton could become so noble and courageous is because he had the examples of others around him, such as Jarvis Laurie, who built a life on serving other people and being, we talked about this in the other podcast, reliable. That's great. I don't know, Zach, what would you add? 
Carton is such a he's such an interesting character to me just because like he he obviously loved Lucy and way back earlier in the text and obviously that love continues but like I I find it interesting that even after she's married to Charles he sticks around and was there for the growing up of little Lucy and so I think it to me it just shows that he I, I don't want to be cliche and say he always he had it in him all along, you know, but it, I mean, it kind of does like that. He always had this kind of heart of gold, but it maybe it was, you know, mm-hmm. over time, kind of his rough exterior and this, this hatred just kind of fell away. And I think he learned over time to become the kind of man that we see him become at the end. I hate the fellow, he says. And then, yeah, why doesn't he let that jealousy consume him? Instead of writing off Lucy and Charles and saying, I never want to have anything to do with you again, he becomes very close friends with them. Yeah, I think that's part of why his heart was kind of softened. He got to know Lucy better and it became more of a love and less of a lust. That love became more and more pure, Um, even though she wasn't with him romantically or anything like that. He just gained more of a desire to to make her happy. Yeah. Do whatever, you know, whatever it is. He gained a purpose and a priority that was outside of himself. Maybe Mm. this is the most important intermediate stepping stone. Yeah, perhaps before in his life, he had no outside, no outside purpose to strive towards. Lucy gives him and his pure love for her gives him, yeah, I'll just repeating myself, gives him something to live for that is noble and good and not self-centered. So if we go to page 351, this is the beginning of chapter 12, book three. It's called Darkness. Third paragraph. I'd like to read the third paragraph. Defarge had described himself that day as the keeper of a wine shop in the St. Antoine suburb. It was not difficult for one who knew the city well to find his house without asking any question. Having ascertained its situation, Carton came out of those closer streets again and dined at a place of refreshment and fell sound asleep after dinner. For the first time in many years, he had no strong drink. Since last night, he had taken nothing but a little light, thin wine, and last night he had dropped the brandy slowly down on Mr. Lorry's hearth like a man who had done with it. He now has important things to do. (laughs) So what I learned from this is that if you don't want your life to collapse into self-satisfied, semi-addictive, self-gratification behavior... You need outside purposes. You need jobs to do. You need a responsibility. You have to go save someone. It's like he doesn't have time to drink because he has to save Lucy, you know? So make sure that you go find in the world important things to do, I think, is, a, is, is something that I'm learning from this. Definitely. Um, how great is Madame Defarge? Now, I asked you, I would love to know if you see yourself in her. This is still in the darkness chapter. Um, for people with ebooks, I'm not exactly sure where to tell you. You can Google these words. I want to start reading at the paragraph. I communicate to him that secret. This is Madame Defarge speaking. She's talking to her husband and she says, I communicate to him that secret. I smite this bosom with these two hands as I smite it now. And I tell him, Defarge, I was brought up among the fishermen of the seashore and that peasant family so injured by the two Evermont brothers as that Bastille paper describes is my family. Defarge, that sister of the mortally wounded boy upon the ground was my sister. That husband was my sister's husband. That unborn child was their child. That brother was my brother. That father was my father. Those dead are my dead. And that summons to answer for those things descends to me. It is so, assented Defarge once more. And then she responds, then tell the wind and fire where to stop. But don't tell me. 
I love this passage. Her family has been hurt and killed and abused. And in response to this injury and trauma, she assumes the role of avenging fire, even more than fire. Fire can be stopped. Wind can be stopped. Don't dare stop me. I'm more powerful than that. My rage is elemental. Do you see yourselves in this? Again, no confessions. What do you I, think? I suppose, like, I don't want to, because I think, so I, I'm, I'm just a huge Dickens fan in general. And with all of his books that I've read, my, my favorite is David Copperfield. I love that book. Oh, it's so, uh, I just it's actually so read good. it. It's, it's so, so good. I had no idea how good it could be. It was like 10 times better. It's such a honestly, good book. Honestly, it's, it's my favorite book of all time. And like, I, something that Dickens does so well is he, his characters are so realistic and so relatable you don't want to see yourselves in in them, but I think that's what makes them so despicable is that we can see the worst elements of ourselves in them. Yeah. Uh, what with like, you know, in Copperfield, it's it's Uriah Heep and he's so despicable. And same here with Madame Defarge, you, you're like, you don't want to think that you're capable of such rage, but then you look back and you're like, I'm pretty sure there are moments in my own life when I felt that kind of rage. But I think it's just such a lesson that, you know, we should always be aware of these sorts of lesser moments in our character and try not to let that, you know, really define who we are. Because in the end, I feel like that's what defines Madame Defarge is her rage. Uh, it's yeah. always just under the surface and sometimes uh, boils out, especially towards the end here. We need to be careful about that. So I don't know. And even in, um, I mean, even Uriah Heep, I mean, we don't have to go down the David Copperfield road, but yeah, he is quite despicable, but still quite sympathetic. I mean, in the end, when he ends up in prison, I feel bad for him. And even David Copperfield's aunt, who at the, at the beginning of the story, I thought would turn out to be a villain. She's quite heartless. And it's like, has, I want nothing to do with this baby. Ends up becoming the most endearing, the most beloved character. I mean, there are villains and there are heroes, but there's always a mixture. There's always characters who contain a mixture of both, you know? I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. But uh, only to add a bit is that we all, each of us innately desires to be the hero of our stories of life. But to become that, you know, we need to acknowledge the villain in each of us and and work yeah. through that. And seeing these stories and seeing their rationale behind being quote unquote wicked or, or villainous firsthand helps us relate to them and be able to see, oh, I understand that. Because, yeah, I am that sometimes or a little bit all the time. Mm -hmm. And so then just reading that along with the the heroes or the good people and their efforts to be good uh, helps us be able to see clearly how to convert those feelings. So it's super cool to have that all together in one book. What you say is really key. Um, we have to recognize this potential for evil within ourselves. The first step towards becoming villainous per could be the belief that you're immune the belief that you're incapable of becoming villainous, mm. being blind to this potential inside of you. Sidney Carton, I think, knows that, oh, I, I am pretty, or I, I, could, I could be pretty um, abominable. And knowing that, but, then, but, but knowing that is the first step to overcoming it, perhaps. Whereas this righteous, self-righteous anger that Madame Defarge is possessed by, she thinks that she is acting completely morally. You know, there's nothing in her that would admit to uh, making a mistake or overreacting. So she lacks self-knowledge. Is there any, uh, this maybe is an unprompted question and maybe it doesn't have any interesting or productive answers, but are there any other traits that she lacks as a person? Like, 
what what does she need more of? To me, like she embodies total justice without mercy, no mercy whatsoever. And it's always justice. Like even when, you know, the doctor himself is saying, look, this guy is all right. You know, Charles is a good man right. and sticking up for him. She's like, oh, but this letter that you wrote years ago is <laughs> saying that you condemn him. And obviously that needs to be fulfilled. And so no mercy whatsoever, no empathy. And I think that's that's one yeah. of the biggest character flaws of that she has. In this chapter, The Knitting Done, we are told, yeah, this is in The Knitting Done where, where we read this, but imbued from her childhood with a, a brooding sense of wrong. This is very interesting. Let me slow down. <clears throat> this is the narrator describing Madame Defarge. But imbued from her childhood with a brooding sense of wrong and an inveterate hatred of a class, Opportunity had developed her into a tigress. She was absolutely without pity. If she ever had had the virtue in her, it had quite gone out of her. I think over and over again, we see pity. I mean, you used the word mercy, Zach, and perhaps these words aren't total overlaps of each other, but certainly there's a Venn diagram on which they're related, crucially related, pity, mercy, empathy, compassion. We see this over and over again in these texts. In King Lear, you know, there there are characters in that play very similar, who have no pity, who close the door on their aging fathers and say, so be it. If he dies there, he dies. What is perhaps the central ingredient of his transformation? It is him looking on the poor naked wretches of the world and saying, thou hast taken too little care of this. And he says, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. In other words, increase the amount of pity that you have, the amount of compassion, co-passion with other oppressed creatures. I think we're starting to see the beginnings of a pattern here. Pity is an absolutely essential virtue, the ability to have pity. Yeah, and kind of considering Madame Defarge and her lack of pity, her lack of empathy or belief that those around her could change, lack of forgiveness, Yeah, um, I think is a big one. It's consistent in King Lear as well. Um, and how that selfishness or pride or just close-mindedness towards others, their potential kind of leads to that person's destruction or like Madame Defarge's destruction and or King Lear's daughter's self-consumption. Just that pride really uh, is evidence to consume yourself. <laughs> it's just not productive in any way, even for yourself. You say a very important thing about the her inability to imagine the um, improvements of other people or her inability to forgive other people. I love these, these sentences that I read. Imbued from her childhood with a brooding sense of wrong. So uh, what is the first mistake she made or what is the first mistake that happened to her? It, there's a nature versus nurture question here. And it's hard to know. You know, I've quoted this snippet of this poem that I really like by W.H. Auden in which he says, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. So these are cycles that perpetuate themselves. But what is the first thing that went wrong in Madame Defarge's life? Well, from her childhood, she brooded on this sense of wrong. There's a clear injunction here. Don't brood on sense of wrong. Don't brood on the way in which you have been wronged in the world. Don't ignore it. Don't be naive. Don't let yourself be taken advantage of. Don't brood over it. Imbued from her childhood with a brooding sense of wrong and an inveterate hatred of a class. This goes to your point, Kevin, like she can't imagine that the aristocracy of France could improve or repent or change. 
if you are an enemy, you are an enemy and you will always be an enemy. And there's no point, there's, there's no, th- no such thing as rehabilitation for you. And therefore, forgiveness is pointless because you will never change. And I also think this is great, an inveterate hatred of a class, like hatred of any class is bad. Any social class, any racial class, any, any group of people, they're just, it's too easy to dehumanize when you box people into these groups like this. So you say, oh, the aristocracy, all bad, off with their heads. And they don't have to be humans anymore because they're this objective, generalized thing that you can just dispose, dispose of. And I love this word tigress, that tigress comes up very much um, what Albany says to Goneril and Regan, tigresses. Okay, so how great are these moments when um, Madame Defarge is approaching? Oh my gosh, it's so suspenseful, isn't it? It's so wonderfully suspenseful. So I'm going to read just a little bit of this. Where are you going to be reading it? Well, I'm going to be reading, I'm going to start in the knitting, the knitting done. I'll be jumping around a little bit. I just want to remind people of the encounter between these two women, Miss Pross and Madame Defarge, and the way that Charles Dickens, technically as an author, builds the suspense. He's just so good at this. And then I'm going to land at the question about Miss Pross, and I want to ask you guys how Miss Pross became who she is. It's kind of a related question we asked about Sidney Carton, but I'm, I've read this book several times and I just cannot get over. I'm still surprised every time I see Miss Pross to finally stand up. Like, wow, this is so surprising and so amazing. So... I'll start reading here. Such a heart Madame Defarge carried under her rough robe. Sorry, if you have the edition from this class, it's 376. Such a heart Madame Defarge carried under her rough robe, carelessly worn, it was a becoming robe enough in a certain weird way, and her dark hair looked rich under her coarse red cap. Lying hidden in her bosom was a loaded pistol. Lying hidden at her waist was a sharpened dagger. Thus accoutred and walking with the confident tread of such a character and with the supple freedom of a woman who had habitually walked in her girlhood barefoot and barelegged on the brown sea sand, Madame Defarge took her way along the streets. I should remind readers that we previously see her decapitate someone. I don't remember where this is, but you remember this, right? So we know what she's capable of. Um, I guess we're skipping the part where Charles, uh, Sidney Carton goes to the prison and swaps clothes with Charles Darnay. I don't know if there's anything we need to say about that yet, because that's where our conversation will end with that whole exchange and with the death of Sidney Carton. But we already know that that has happened and that, and that Charles Darnay has been rescued from the Bastille. And he and Lucy and Dr. Manette are attempting to flee France. And Madame Defarge is chasing them because she wants to kill them. They're getting ready. The Cruncher and Miss, Miss Pross are talking. And still Madame Defarge, pursuing her way along the streets, came nearer and nearer. If we ever get back to our native land, said Miss Pross, you may rely upon my telling Mrs. Cruncher as much as I may be able to remember and understand of what you have so impressively said. And at all events, you may be sure that I shall bear witness to your being thoroughly in earnest at this dreadful time. Now pray, let us think, my esteemed Mr. Cruncher, let us think. Still, Madame Defarge, pursuing her way along the streets, came nearer and nearer. If you were to go before, said Miss Pross, and stop the vehicle and horses from coming here and were to wait somewhere for me, wouldn't that be best? Mr. Cruncher thought it might be best. Where could you wait for me? Asked Miss Pross. Mr. Cruncher was so bewildered that he could think of no locality but Temple Bar. Alas, Temple Bar was was hundreds of miles away, and Madame Defarge was drawing very near indeed. She enters the house, so there's this basin of water that Miss Pross is dealing with. In one of those pauses, she recoiled Miss Pross and cried out, for she saw a figure standing in the room. The basin fell to the ground, and the water flowed to the feet of Madame Defarge. By strange, stern ways, and through much staining of blood, those feet had come to meet that water. 
skipping a little bit, Miss Pross says, you might from your appearance be the wife of a Lucifer. <laughs> oh, so good. Nevertheless, you shall not get the better of me. I am an English woman. Gandalf standing up to the Balrog, you know, you shall not pass. Each spoke in her own language. Neither understood the other's words, but were very watchful and intent to deduce from look and manner what the unintelligible words meant. If those eyes of yours were bedwinches, returned Miss Pross, and I was an English four-poster, they shouldn't lose a splinter of me. No, you wicked foreign, foreign woman, I am your match. I am a Briton, said Miss Pross. I am desperate. I don't care an English twopence for myself. I know that the longer I keep you here, the greater hope there is for my ladybird, for Lucy, to escape. I'll not leave a handful of that dark hair upon your head if you lay a finger on me. But her courage was of that emotional nature that it brought the irrepressible tears into her eyes. This was a courage that Madame Defarge so little comprehended as to mistake for weakness. Anyway, what happens? Turning the page. I'm doing a lot of talking. Sorry. I just This is the climax of the book for me. It's one of the climaxes. have to read it. Um, Madame Defarge says, I have been in the streets from the first. Nothing has stopped me. I will tear you to pieces, but I will have you from that door. Madame Defarge made at the door. Miss Pross, on the instinct of the moment, seized her round the waist in both her arms and held her tight. It was in vain for Madame Defarge to struggle and to strike. Miss Pross, with the vigorous tenacity of love, always so much stronger than hate, clasped her tight and even lifted her from the floor in the struggle that they had. The two hands of Madame Defarge buffeted and tore at her face, but Miss Pross, with her head down, held her round the waist and clung to her with more than the hold of a drowning woman. They fall to the ground. Madame Defarge is stabbed with this knife. I should, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that Miss Pross had this in her. What's your general reaction to this moment? What do you think of Miss Pross as a character? I will now finally shut up. I absolutely loved this part. I don't know what it was about it. Like the fact that like the author, you know, Dickens even mentions that like they can't understand each other because one's speaking English and the other speaking French. But Miss Pross is just so determined to yeah. protect Lucy and her family that she's just like, you know, I don't care why you're here. You're, you obviously have ill intent, but I'm going to, I'm going to stop you no matter what it takes. And just, oh, I don't know. Miss Frost is amazing. The fact that like the gun goes off and she's like, she can't hear anything. Oh, is and, it a like, gun? Yeah. I'm, I'm, mis I'm misremembering. Like, it's not a knife. It's a gun. Yeah. So she like, she gets yeah, the gun right. and then it goes off and she's like deafened. And like it mentions later, like she never really recovers her hearing. Oh, that's, that's exactly it's, right. It's How could like, I have forgotten that? Yeah. It's just, I mean, I don't know. Just this whole event is just, it's absolutely remarkable to me. I love it. What a great detail. Yeah. She never quite regained her hearing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kevin, what are your thoughts? Nothing. It just shows her love for good and her, her fight to defend righteousness and her motherly instincts. I mean, all that kind of stuff. It's great. I love it. I love that she gets to be the hero of the book. I mean, Sidney Carton is the hero of the book, but I just love Dickens for this moment, for letting Miss Pross, who is been, is, has been all along the whole book busy working in the margins and in the shadows, mm -hmm. doing what she can, you know, being a help and a comfort. I love that she gets to be the barrier past which Madame Defarge cannot pass. This says to me that you don't need to be Achilles. You don't need to be Edgar. You don't need to be a knight. You don't need to be Beowulf. You know, you don't need to be a literal sword wielding hero. Mm. You can just, I say, you can just be a person, but that, that diminishes it unnecessarily. How, how to not sound trite and sentimental, but we all have this in us. 
I find it interesting. Sorry, I don't want to like derail the please, conversation please, or anything, please, please. but like uh, I love how Miss Pross and Madame Defarge are almost like exact opposites. You could say that they were both like of similar like social status, but one is just so full of loyalty and love towards the people that she's she's you know serving and helping, and yeah. Madame Defarge in the same or similar situation is just so full of hatred. And like yeah. in the end, we see which one of these wins out, and I think that's just I think that's incredible. Now we we shouldn't get too idealistic because Madame de um, Miss Pross and, and Dickens makes this explicit that love is a more powerful motivating force than hate. This is why he has Sidney Carton whisper into little Lucy's ear, a life you love. Love must be our motivating factor. It just must. It's always going to be more powerful and more meaningful and more productive. Miss Pross is lucky and she wins this little tussle over the gun. Sidney Carton is, I say unlucky. That's a slight understatement. He makes a knowing sacrifice. He goes into this prison knowing he won't come out. So sometimes love, sometimes the triumph of love involves us surviving. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, think of that servants in King Lear. Why is the death of Sidney Carton, we now need to spend the remaining 12 minutes talking about that. Why is the death of Sidney Carton still a triumph, even though he dies? Well, I think because of a lot of reasons, but, but just the intent behind it, um, and the fact that it was intentional, just it really allowed Charles and Lucy to be together and, and the rest of them to escape for them to keep living and, and make more of an impact. I mean, it's evidenced in the amount of peace he felt leading up to the actual event of his death. He felt totally at peace. He knew he was doing a great, great thing and that a sacrifice wouldn't be in vain. And I think the, that piece is evidence that it was it was uh, a triumph. The intent, yeah, the intent is triumphal. I mean, he sacrifices his life, now re-quoting the New Testament, but he gains it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a that's a real triumph. I, I tried to make this provocative point that King Lear isn't really a tragedy because yes, he dies, but before he dies, he finally lives, lives meaningfully. Yes, Sidney Carton dies, but before he dies, he he becomes the best version of himself he could ever become. What would you add, Zach? I think it's interesting how like in that the last pages of the book, it talks about how um, if he were to have like written down his, you know, a prophetic thing that he would see there at the end, um, how he would yeah. see that all the people that are putting these people to the death would find themselves, you know, in the same situation in a few years or months or whatever. Yeah. And, and I find it interesting because like, it's likely that those people won't be remembered, but mm. Sidney Carton, you know, he eventually like we, we, here in that same prophetic section that, you know, he would have uh, a child named after him, you know, yeah. by those people. He's remembered for for what he's done. And like, obviously you don't have to be remembered for doing good things, but I think that just that adds to the, just the poetry of it. He is to be remembered. I don't know. It, it reminds me, I'm totally blanking on the name of the, the person who said it, but they said um, to know that just one life breathed easier because you have lived this is to su- have succeeded. And I think that that's the definition of uh, Sidney Carton's role in this, this book. What a great transition, because uh, let's go to page 368. Um, this is the chapter 52. 52, if I remember correctly. I'm now distrusting my memory because of that gun knife snafu. 52 is the, he's 52 in line to be hung. Yeah, this is what this means. He's the 52nd prisoner that will be killed that day. He's waiting in line and all of the other condemned prisoners are waiting in line in front of the gallows to be hung. And uh, in that chapter, page 368, he says, 
I'll, I'll try to squeeze all this in into eight minutes. As he stood by the wall in a dim, dim corner while some of the 52 were brought in after him, one man stopped in passing to embrace him as having a knowledge of him. It thrilled him with a great dread of discovery, but the man went on. A very few moments after that, a young woman with a slight girlish form, a sweet spare face in which there was no vestige of color and large, widely opened patient eyes rose from the seat where he had observed her sitting and came to speak to him. Citizen Evermont, because she thinks he's Charles Darnay, so she's calling him by this family name. Citizen Evermont, she said, touching him with her cold hand, I am a poor little seamstress who was with you in La Force. He murmured for answer. True, I forget what you were accused of. And then she answers, plots, which breaks my heart. That's her crime. The most vague and ambiguous, meaningless accusation, right? Plots. Though the just heaven knows I am innocent of any. Is it likely? Who would think of plotting with a poor little weak creature like me? The forlorn smile with which she said it so touched him that tears started from his eyes. I am not afraid to die, Citizen Evermond, but I have done nothing. I am not unwilling to die if the Republic, which is to do so much good to us poor, she's still so sadly naive, uh, if the Republic will profit by my death, but I do not know how that can be, Citizen Evermond, such a poor, weak little creature. Skipping a bit, as the patient eyes were lifted to his face, he saw a sudden doubt in them and then astonishment. He pressed the work-worn, hunger-worn young fingers and touched his lips. He sees that she has recognized that he's not Charles Darnay. And she says, are you dying for him? She whispered. And his wife and child. Sidney Carton responds, hush, yes. Oh, will you let me hold your brave hand, stranger? Hush, yes, my poor sister, to the last. Zach, yeah, that's a great moment. Like, the comforting of one individual soul is can justify a life. You know, he, he, he can now die. He's lived. He's done important work in the world because he's given this poor girl some comfort in her last moments. I find this so beautiful. And then this wonderfully horrible moment where vengeance, the woman vengeance is look. She's in the crowd of the execution looking around. Where is Madame Defarge? She's missing the best part. Great irony. What do you make of this biblical repetition? So Sidney Carton is thinking of these phrases from the Bible, phrases like, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. How do you react to this? This phrase is uttered a few times as a kind of refrain. I mean, obviously, Sidney's like, like Jesus Christ in, in his sacrifice. I think maybe it's acknowledged explicitly like that, just so it's, it remains obvious. Um, to the readers but yeah i think it's just super cool the way dickens goes about all that how not only does this sacrifice give charles and lucy and their daughter like a second chance i think it also gives mr Laurie more chance to to continue forward with hope um i remember he was without hope knowing that mm. uh, charles was going to die and he thought there was nothing they could do um and he was feeling pretty bad about his life and was just going to leave and move on and just kind of be sorrowful but um, the sacrifice helps so many people have hope and continue forward and try to be better after that. You know, you remember this um, little paragraph from Middlemarch that I brought into class, like like the tributaries of a river, this action will diffuse itself into the landscape, into the coming generations in, in incalculable ways. It's just incredible. I love how everything kind of ties together in a, a neat little bow. You feel you're simultaneously like devastated because this is happening, but at the same time, you're extremely happy because Sydney seems to have found his purpose, even if it is yes. at the end. 
And I think that's awesome. Sorry, I just want to end with the a few sentences from this prophetic vision. So they said of him about the city that night that it was the peace. So this is referring to Sidney Carton. They said of him about the city that night that it was the peacefulest man's face ever beheld there. Many added that he looked sublime and prophetic. One of the most remarkable sufferers by the same acts, a woman, had asked at the foot of the same scaffold not long before to be allowed to write down the thoughts that were inspiring her. If he had given any utterance to his, and they were prophetic, they would have been these. I see this, I see that, I see this. I see a child who bears my name. So it's kind of, we're imagining the narrator saying, this isn't what Sidney Carton actually said. It's like, he would have, this is what was in his mind. He would have said this. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and bore my name. A man winning his way up in that, that path of life, which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. I see him foremost of just judges and honored men, bringing a boy of my name with a forehead that I know and golden hair to this place, then fair to look upon with not a trace of this day's disfigurement. And I hear him tell this child my story with a tender and a faltering voice. So remember a life that you love, like we can't have this kind of mindset every single minute of our lives, but I think off periodic check-ins will help. What do you want people to say about you after you're dead? what do you want your life to look like and how can you make it so that it's a thing that is lovable? It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest than I go to than I have ever known. The end. I just want to say that is the greatest last line of any book I've ever read. I think it just, it's so fitting and it's, it. it's remarkable. I love it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you both for an excellent chat. Sounds great. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. That's it for now. Coming up soon will be a recording about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as well as a couple shorter recordings about William Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and John Keats's poem Ode to a Nightingale, which I hope you enjoy. As usual, just keep reading and keep loving the readings. Mm -hmm.